polarization occurs when all of the social groups in society and all of the policy issues tend to line up on the same axis. And so you can easily predict um, based on knowing somebody's position on one issue, what their position on another issue will be. And you can easily predict based on their affiliation with one social group, what other social groups they're likely to be affiliated with. Uh, this is bad at the voter level because it makes it really costly for people to change their minds. And so voters end up being less responsive um, to things that you would want voters to be responsive to. And it is bad at the elite level because it makes it harder for people to compromise and solve social problems. Um, because if the same, if the same person is your enemy in every single debate, uh, then you never practice compromising with them. You never learn how to respect them. Um, and ultimately, you just let, so, let problems um, simmer uh, the way that we've seen uh, happen so frequently over the past few decades. Hello everyone. Here at Between the Headlines, we're thinking about the stories shaping society. And there's no story more important, perhaps, than the fate of American democracy. The big question is, why has our democratic system taken a turn for the worse in recent years, and how can we help to salvage it? To answer that, I've invited political scientist Matthew Graham, who is an expert in the voting public's role in keeping anti-democratic politicians accountable. So, yeah, let's start with the big question. I think one of the really interesting and saddening things that we're seeing in America and around the world today is that democracy is declining, but also people are allowing it to decline. So what causes citizens to refuse to punish um, or even support anti-democratic candidates? It's a great question. So in terms of refusing to punish, there are probably a lot of factors. Uh, there are three that come to my mind. Uh, one is the nature of polarization. The way I like to think about polarization is that it is the alignment of many factors, uh, you know, everybody's policy priorities start to fit together into the same groups. Everybody's social groups start to fit together perfectly with the two sides. And so in order to respond to a candidate or party's undemocratic actions by defecting to the other side, you have to give up a whole lot. Um, you know, in, in particular for a Republican is what we're looking at these days. Um, punishing your party for doing something that you think violates democratic values uh, requires you to vote for a candidate that you might disagree with on a host of issues and that you might see as very different from you culturally. And so even if people 
care about democracy, polarization raises the stakes of elections. Uh, the second thing that I think of is ignorance. So most people don't pay all that much attention to politics. And if they learn things about politics, they tend to learn about learn about things that are good for their side if they learn about them at all. And so one of the things that I found in my dissertation is that you know, when President Trump would make a statement like Article 2 of the Constitution gives me the power to do whatever I want, Democrats would find out that he made that statement, but Republicans would have no idea if he made it. Um, and it's easy to point to those wrong answers to a quiz question on a survey and think, oh, they have a misperception. Um, but the truth of the matter is people just don't find out about these things. And it's really easy for people who pay, pay a lot of attention to politics, uh, like me as a political scientist, like you who's doing a podcast about politics, and always think of explanations in terms of what is in people's minds. But People also just don't find out about things in that seem so basic to somebody who follows politics on a day to day basis, um, and even something as the seemingly basic as the details of the events of January sixth. Um, a lot of people just never hear that stuff. And the last factor I would highlight in terms of refusing to punish is a lack of knowledge about what democracy is. So as Americans, we don't like to learn from other countries about how to do things. And we're the world's oldest democracy. We have the world's oldest constitution. Um, that also means that other countries have you know, almost 250 years of experience running democracies since we came up with the way that we do things. And so Americans don't necessarily realize that practices like gerrymandering, uh, drawing uh, the, the boundaries of congressional districts to favor your side um, is blatantly undemocratic. Um, the Electoral College, which ends up counting different people's votes differently, is blatantly undemocratic. And I, in the political science community, there used to be this instinct of um, falsely equating anything that's legal in the United States with things that are democratic. But I don't get quite as much pushback now uh, saying that things that the Supreme Court said are illegal are also undemocratic. Um, but the, we haven't been awake to this threat for all of that long. Um, in terms of why people might actively support it, uh, there are also, I guess I can also think of three factors. I think the most important thing is elite opinion leadership. And when I say elite, I mean figures in the media, politicians. Uh, most voters don't learn the details of policy or democratic institutions, and it's unrealistic to expect them to. I don't think your theory of democratic stability um, can reasonably depend on a large swath of voters knowing exactly what is democratic and um, how to defend it. And so when you have public figures that are widely looked up to advocating for some action and saying it's okay, people are going to follow. 
Um, to the extent that it does matter what's in voters' minds, I think there are, are two things. There's the perception that the other side does it. Uh, you know, I, I learned about uh, President Trump's uh, misuse of, uh, of, of the um, foreign aid allocation process with respect to Ukraine in a cafe in upstate New York by overhearing some older people talking about it. And immediately, um, one of the older people um, at the table um, was saying, well, the Democrats, they cheat and they cheat and they cheat and they cheat. Who cares about this? You know, there's this tendency in our society to justify your actions in terms of some other person's perceived actions instead of what's right and wrong. Um, And then there can just be the instrumental factor that um, you you think you benefit from it. You know, maybe it's better to keep the other side out of power if they're so crazy. Um, but I really do think that the factors fall in that order and that we should be emphasizing um, elite leadership, the high costs of polarization, uh, ignorance, before we attribute it to things that are actively going on in uh, everyday people's minds. Okay, um, so we'll come back to that theme of polarization, and I want that to kind of, I guess, form a good section of our discussion today. But first, I want to talk about the interaction between the elite leadership you mentioned, and then that ignorance, both about current affairs and about democracy itself. You said that it is, of course, unreasonable to assume that everyone will have a working knowledge of democratic theory, but it also seems that that's somewhat necessary to prevent this gullibility against kind of miscues from leadership. So why has American democracy worked even with that disconnect in the past? What's breaking down today and how can we kind of bridge that gap? Well, elite actors need to have an incentive to, uh, to buy into the democratic system if it's going to work and and both sides need to feel like they're getting getting something out of it you can't sustain uh democratic norms um unilaterally and so historically in the united states a major engine of compromise um, between Democrats and Republicans and between um, the parties that existed before Democrats and Republicans um, was the mutual agreement that Black Americans were going to be excluded from the political system. Um, for instance, the New Deal um, is crucial to securing um, Southern Democrats' support for New Deal programs was allowing them to be administered in a way um, that made sure to exclude uh, Black people from those benefits. Um, and that's not the only factor, but I do think it exemplifies the fact that um, you really do need the uh, elite commitment. And the most that I think is reasonable to expect out of the voting public is some kind of reaction 
to the things that you think are good or bad. Um, so a few percentage points of vote swing here or there, you know, in response to an aspiring authoritarian or in response to a leader who presides over a poor economy um, or a disastrous war effort or something like that. You know, oftentimes the way the public allocates credit and blame for events um, doesn't make all that much sense. But um, having the expectation of a peaceful transfer of power and having better leaders selected on average is a pretty good incentive for a political system to have. And um, I, and I, I think a lot of political scientists share this view that this, the folk theory of democracy um, gives too much, gives voters too much credit when things go right. Um, and expects far too much of voters when things go wrong. I think one thing that's been made pretty clear is that we as a public aren't very good at democratic accountability. So why aren't we better? I think the biggest reason that the public fails to hold candidates accountable is that in a polarized environment, it's so clear to so many people, which side of the political spectrum they um, stand on for so many reasons. You know, even if you don't actively follow politics, you know, it's very clear these days um, that Democrats are, that Democrats stand with ethnic minorities um, and, uh, and other oppressed groups um, like uh like LGBT people um, and Republicans stand on the side of you know, white people and traditional conservatism, and they uh, don't like abortion. You know, and if if you know that and a couple of more basic things about where the parties stand, um, then it's going to take an awful lot for uh, you know some perceived transgression of. Um, democratic norms that you might not even know that much about in the first place to change your vote. Um, and so I, I really think the most important reason that the public fails to uh, stand up for um, democracy is the combination of, of not finding out about things and not paying as much attention as we think they do. And to the extent um, that they do find out, they don't just have to disapprove of it. It has to outweigh you know, the, so many other factors. And I think you would see a much larger share of voters changing their votes in response to things like what Trump uh, did and said in the lead up to the 2016 election um, or on the basis of his record leading up to 2020 if we weren't in an environment where there were so many other factors stacked up uh, keeping voters with the side that they that is so clear to them that they prefer a baseline. I think now we're going very deep into the voter psyche, which I know we're trying to avoid. But why isn't this existential crisis to democracy something that people say this is something that's historical, that's pivotal, that should weigh any of these policy interests? Well, I think uh, I think the. Reason for that relates to the premise that this is an existential threat. You know, I, I think that 
it's quite plausible that this is an existential threat. Um, and if the if the stars align in the right way in 2024, um, Republicans are putting elected fish, elected officials in office at the state level in charge of overseeing elections who would uh, be willing to overturn the results of a free and fair election. Um, it's not clear that that's going to happen. Um, and even more so than that, it's not clear that uh, the members of the voting public that you would need to change their votes in response to that threat see it as that type of threat um, because most of them aren't paying that much attention to politics. And to the extent that they pay attention to politics, you know, they're seeing Fox News for five minutes in the barber shop and hearing uh, maybe somebody say some stuff secondhand. Um, in some conversation at church, you know, in order for uh, people to uh, respond to an existential crisis, I mean, they have to see it that way. I think that if I think if people if more people saw it as an existential crisis, um, they would they would respond um, to a greater extent. And um, I do think that's the most important factor. Um, I don't think that that is the only factor. And there are certainly reasons why in a voter's psyche um, that might lead them to uh, brush off arguments that it is an existential crisis. Um, and I, I think it's this, I, I think the most important thing in that respect is this uh, sense that both sides do it or they cheat too, um, or whatever it is. You know, I personally, I think that it is quite clear um, which political party is more willing to respect um, democratic norms. Um, now, whether that is because it's in their benefit to make sure as many people vote as possible. Um, as opposed to some deeper commitment to democratic values, and that's another question. Um, but but somebody who um, has a pre-existing sense that uh, Democrats are dishonest and are willing to game the electoral process, um, and they have a general sense that Trump is a good guy, um, it is going to be hard to break through. Um, to that person and convince them um, that what's going on now is in fact an existential threat, an existential threat. And I think that um, if you were talking to a lot of academics, you would get to that response a lot more quickly. Um, but I do think that there is a uh, massive and hugely problematic tendency among observers of politics to jump to explanations like that, um, ultimately because they are more similar to the things that are going on in the hyper-attentive observer's mind. Unfortunately, the next section of our discussion was not recorded due to technical issues. Since Matthew said that voters can't hold candidates accountable sufficiently and shouldn't be expected to, I asked, 
what institutions should then take on that responsibility. To my surprise, he said that parties should take on a more prominent role. In the US, primary elections are so open to public influence, where primary voters largely pick the nominee with little room for the party establishment to weigh in. Matthew said that this has created a major vulnerability for demagoguery and charismatic, candidate-oriented politics, which is further aggravated by controversy-loving media. Parties take into account their long-term success and a reputation of credibility as being pro-democracy, which means that parties are incentivized to stop subversion, unlike short-term thinking candidates. He said that while the Democratic and Republican parties appear strong, this is just because we have a winner-take-all system, and that the parties actually have very little control over their process, as we saw in the 2016 primaries. He said complete voter authority is not ideal for democracy, because participation does not equal accountability. So the, the most important part of the prescription is to have a multi-party system. And I think everybody can get on board with that. I mean, we need real choices and um, we're not necessarily, um, the two choices we're given right now aren't satisfying to a lot of people. Um, polarization is, uh, is not a story about people liking their own party more. It's a story of people disliking the other party more. And so the most important thing is, is to have that multi-party system um, that allows people to have more choices and makes it easier for people to, to switch parties um, when one party does, some, when their usual preferred party does something they don't like, because then you don't have to leap all the way across the political spectrum. You can just go to the other conservative party or the other liberal party. Um, so multi-party system is the most important thing, um, but party systems do also work better when political parties have control over their nomination process. Um, and so I, you know, if you got to be pragmatic about these types of things, I think it's much easier to convince people that a multi-party system is necessary. And I would be thrilled if that were all we were able to get. Um, but I do also believe that um, a multi-party system would work better if we delegated the process of candidate selection um, to the professionals and um, saved our uh, way in as voters um, for the final decision. Okay, now I want to move to two sets of concluding messages and I guess words of advice to the audience, um, which I think these two camps are very cleanly split by your criteria of ignorance about current affairs and about democracy. So first of all, to the highly politically attuned and attentive listener, um, on the one hand, you want to make sure that these people take an active role in actually defending democracy because they're more aware of what's going on. On the other hand, you don't want their barrier of having knowledge to impact the way that um, they make presumptions of the rest of the public. So what do you think is the right role for this subsection of the population to take in response to 
the decline of democracy? I think people, especially young people who are concerned about the um, health of democracy, need to be unapologetic big thinkers. Um, I don't see an easy way out of this without uh, major systemic change. And I think I think the most important route to that is uh, multi-party democracy. And, and I think the path to that is supporting um, institutional changes at the local level that will get people used to these institutions. Um, so having multi-member districts, um, having proportional representation, having ranked choice voting. Um, if you can fight for institutional changes like that in your city or your state, uh, that's how you get voters used to it. And that's how you get politicians in the pipeline um, that are friendly to those solutions. And so that's one thing. Um, in the process of advocating for big institutional changes um, that can make things better, uh, I think it's really important to listen to uh, political scientists, to people who spend have spent their entire lives um, studying what works well and what doesn't work well um, in terms of democratic political systems. Um, some reform groups and reform efforts um, are devoted to ideas that are good, but there are also plenty of reformers who um, devote their time um, to things like making primaries open to voter participation, um, enacting term limits on elected politicians, um, banning uh, lobbyists, um, which sound good on their face, but the you know the alternative is not necessarily better than whatever um, the bad thing in front of you seems to be. So we need big, big picture institutional change. Um, it needs to be smart institutional change. And if we're going to get there, uh, we need to listen to empirical political scientists. Um, and we need to especially listen to scholars of comparative politics, um, whose job it is to learn from the examples of all of the other hundreds of countries in the world um, who have had experiences trying out different uh, types of political institutions. And what about for the less politically informed citizen? I would say that, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't pay that much attention to politics, um, Feel good about yourself if you want to vote for or against somebody on the basis that they just seem like a, a person with good or bad moral character. Uh, I, I think traditionally there was this sense in um, in politics that that, uh, that that didn't matter or something because what matters is policy. Um, but you know, the people who seem like upstanding folks are going to be more likely to do the right thing um, when their self-interest comes into conflict with doing the right thing. Um, and, you know, we are in a situation 
right now where the next couple of decades in American politics are going to be really important. And it and it's it's really important to just have good people in charge. I certainly hope that we can do that. And thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, Justin. 